0: Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, We you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in, because Big Mike has got the life starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik, and today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome Michael Guffrey. Hi, Michael. Hey, how are you doing, Mike? I'm doing well. How about you? Thank you for coming on the podcast. And I mean, uh, fantastic. Yeah, let me let me do a quick intro. Uh, Michael is a co-owner and VP of sales of so a multi-million-dollar automated teller machine distributorship, uh, automated ATM solutions, and he's a capital raiser into multifamily uh, deals and investor syndicator through the Pacific Capital LLC. Currently. Owns over 8,200 doors. And together with his uh, wife, Samantha, he has raised over 65 million for uh, multiple syndications over the past uh, 14 months across, I guess, 12 syndications as a GP channel partner. So, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you again for coming. And uh, before we do that, tell us a little bit about Michael. Where do you live, your family, all that good stuff?
1: So that's, it's interesting. We just literally moved uh, a few months back to Scottsdale, but we had been residing part of the year in Spokane, Washington, and part of the year in Southern California, the Temecula area. So that's where we've operated our ATM business from, the two different locations. We used to do a lot of summer events. So we'd spend a lot of time up in Washington and the Northwest um, delivering ATMs, setting them up on a Thursday, tearing them down on a Sunday, uh, and just run to, run different little fairs, street fairs, you name it. That's what we did. Side of actually placing ATMs permanently into people's uh, businesses uh, and generating uh, passive income.
0: Thank you for sharing. So, you moved to um Phoenix area and you're enjoying the heat. <laughs> I'm loving it. Record. I'm actually, actually,
1: to yeah, actually today I'm actually sitting in uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Came up to see my daughter for a couple weeks because uh, last week it was about 120 degrees at five o'clock in the evening in uh, Scottsdale. So, yeah, it's been a little warm. But uh, we're actually enjoying the heat. Um, it's it's beautiful. Like in the in the northwest when we lived up here, nobody went out in the winter. There, nobody goes out in the summer for the for about the two months when it was when it's extremely hot.
0: That that's a great wisdom. And interestingly enough, most people basically want to spend their winter in the uh, in the Phoenix and then their summer somewhere up north. Same thing happens on the East Coast. I'm in New York. People go to Florida. Uh, usually go during the six colder months. And then they go up here and enjoy the summer because summer is beautiful here and nice. The, the heat is not as bad, and it's the reverse. It's the same thing, just west le- left and right coast. So, absolutely. Uh, uh, let's dive a little bit into the ATM uh, machines business. Um, I don't think I've had a guest on a podcast yet that has been an expert in ATMs, and I'm just curious um, uh, how it works. Just, just let's go through the basics. So, folks invest into ATMs. Uh, they buy a bunch of well. I guess it, it, is it a fund that invests? Is it a syndication? Or people buy a bunch of individual machines? I'm just curious. Uh, how, how does it work? All right. So we don't have an ATM fund.
1: We are actually we're an actual ATM reseller and a processing seller. So I've seen some of the AT- ATM syndications that are out there, and um, I think that's a great idea to raise capital to uh, buy additional routes and expand your business but we started our atm company in 1996 but we bought one on my wife's credit card that made her the president and that that's how i ended up being the vp or the vice president of sales because we started it on her credit card when we were just boyfriend and girlfriend so that's how we got started and we would sell these machines or own them ourselves and put them into mom and pop stores load them with cash and then every time somebody transact that that surcharge would fall into our bank account and we'd share a little bit with the location but the majority of it was ours and we took that business from one atm in 1997 or late 1996 to a little over 8200 ATMs so far out there to date um up and running processing through multiple uh sub distributors that operate underneath us to process their transactions because you can't really get invited to run your transactions across the networks until you have a certain amount of volume. So we started underneath another company until we got large enough. And then the sponsoring institution and a processor came to us and said, hey, I see what you guys are doing out there. Why don't you guys come process your transaction with us? And we started to grow it, grow it, grow it. And as you know, when COVID hit, the whole world shut down. ATMs didn't, unless you were in a bar or um, a, a place where nobody could go and work. Um, we were actually an essential service. So we actually got to stay in business. And during that time, our contract with our processor had come up for renewal. My wife uh, negotiated a reduction in our processing fees by a third. And that's pretty, that's pretty huge, which allowed us to go from about 6,000 ATMs pre COVID to over $8,000, 8,000 ATMs post COVID. And now we run a little, little over 2 million transactions a month across that company and it's still growing today
0: wow that is amazing i appreciate the story uh your growth story and obviously ups and downs during COVID. but in general uh it, it is uh interesting and amazing and so what kind of stores do these atms go to It's i know it's really basic stuff to you i i certainly have seen some atms in 7-elevens and other ones but usually, those the big franchise stores they get, um, you know, like a Citibank ATM or JP Morgan Chase ATM. I'm, I'm in New York City; it's a little different. Uh, is it just a, lo- a lot of local mom and pop stores that just want to have an ATM so that customers will get access to cash?
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna blow your mind here. Those ATMs in Seven Eleven are actually owned by a company called Cardtronics. Cardtronics brands them, Chase, or PNC bank or whoever they get a a sponsoring uh, relationship with. So that bank will pay them to put their name on the, on the machine and allow their customers to use it for free. So the ones you see at the Seven Elevens are actually independently owned by another company, just like ours. We're like the number five largest company in the U S cartronics is number one or number two. So there's the difference um, in that bodegas. uh, If we want to go New York style bodegas, uh, places where people go to um, get cocktails, like regular bars, um, taverns, uh, delis, gas stations, liquor stores—you name it, you'll that's you'll find them almost everywhere. And if you walk down through Manhattan, you'll actually see them on the side of the street. They'll be all graffitied up because that's how that's what happens there. But I was literally in Manhattan about a month and a half ago, and they're everywhere, uh, up and down. Uh, I don't even know. I can't remember the name of the street, but they're 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 outside everywhere on the sidewalks because the merchant's space in those stores is so precious they don't even want to give that two square feet up to put an ATM there, even though it generates a lot of revenue. But if it's outside and it can be open twenty four hours a day, well, even when the business isn't open, they can that business can make money even when they're not open.
0: So I guess the ATM owner pays the store owner some kind of rent, some, some sort ATM. of
1: commission, if you
0: will based on the usage gotcha yeah it makes a lot of sense that's an amazing business I was always wondering um, how the math worked from a, an investment perspective for folks to uh and again you you don't operate a fund you don't operate a syndication but I, I was sort of amazed that that the investor would put in 100 and they would get I, I don't know twenty thousand year one and twenty thousand year two it feels like pretty good numbers but then the ATM depreciates over a few years, so you don't really get anything back on the back end. You still owe these in ATMs, but it's over time. How long does an ATM live typically? Is it what, six years? What's the lifespan of an ATM until it basically depreciates to nothing?
1: You can you can actually expense them because they're only a couple thousand dollars to buy one ATM. So about $2,200 to buy one ATM. And we, we typically expense them because they're so cheap. How long does one last? 10 to 15 years, 16 years, the technology for an ATM, uh, other than more encryption on your card or more encryption in the keypad has been the same since 1967 when the first ATM was deployed by Barclays Bank.
0: Interesting. So again, without diving into the upgrade path. I'm sure they need to get upgraded periodically and the companies that, that manage them provide the software upgrades, but the technology is pretty stable. Uh, and then they have a 15-year lifespan. That that feels pretty long. In other words, it's it's pretty good useful life. I, I, I didn't think in this technology world that um, an ATM would live 15 years. I thought, you know, five, six, maybe 10 years in extreme cases, but I guess some of them live, you know, substantially longer. And from a cost perspective, yeah, it's amazing. You're only $2,000. And so on a $2,000, just, just just help me out. Uh, on a $2,000 investment, of course, it's the network, right? It's the fees. Mm-hmm. It's your relationship. What kind of fees, gross fees, an ATM will generate the owner uh, in a given year? So we'll, we'll make it really simple. Let's just talk about
1: one location doing 300 transactions a month at $3 a transactions that's $900 in gross revenue coming in and the machines are a couple of grand even if you have to pay the location say a dollar a transaction so that you're netting out uh you give you give away 300 bucks you're netting out $600 a month in net revenue you could actually make a lot of money uh very quickly cuz the average the average atm across the united states has 320 transactions per month
0: that's amazing. So you basically, if you generate six hundred bucks a month profit on two thousand dollar investment, well, no, no wonder it looks it looks attractive. Uh, <laughs> at least um, to, to the owner. And I don't know what they pay investors, but it it's a um, the, the the returns to investors are not not even close to be this appealing. At least in a few deals that I that I've seen. But the owner of the operate or or the operator has phenomenal return on their on their cash. It's almost to the point where if the returns are so strong, why these funds raise capital uh, from investors? Uh, and they, they're giving investors, in my view, marginal returns. Again, I looked at a couple of them and I said, no, it's not very attractive. You only get 20 24% a year, even if you get 30% a year, because ATM depreciates fairly quickly, uh, is it worth it? But what you just explained, you get uh, 30% return per month as an owner. As an owner, you get six hundred bucks a month. Uh, not six hundred. Not so it's thirty percent a month, not thirty percent a year. Whereas the other eleven Correct. months, they they're benefiting somebody else.
1: Correct, and that's why those funds exist. They're they're out there just raising money to come and try and buy companies like ours and and take up that real estate. And you're basically as a investor in that uh, real estate syndication, you're a hard money lent basically a hard money lender to them with with depreci- a depreciation play in there for you to uh write off against your taxes so that's why they do it
0: yeah it's it's understood they 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 use somebody else's money they keep most of the profits and then they make it sort of attractive to investors you can write off the atm bonus depreciate the whole thing in one year in theory it's it's attractive from that perspective absolutely yeah very powerful appreciate that color now let's switch and talk a little bit about uh multifamily syndications you've done so first of all where are your most of your units uh are you general partner are you an active operator or you're more of a capital raiser and you have partners who run these assets and uh so where are the assets how many doors just curious
1: so between as a limited partner I have a little over 60 not six thousand doors and as a general partner a little over 2200 and so the twenty two hundred is across twelve deals that we've raised capital on. Because any deal we raise capital on, we're a general partner. And I have a I have four different teams that I work with, and I help them raise capital. I we sit in on all the property management meetings, and most of these properties are located. I have a bunch in Texas. We have uh, Tennessee. We're chasing one right now in Georgia. Um, so basically, this the the south the mid middle middle u s in the south uh landlord and business friendly states for the most part uh we do have one unit in about four hundred units in uh Arizona that I'm a limited partner on so for me i one of my main criteria is the state the state can't be involved running your business so if if you go into certain states where they, the government says you you don't have to pay rent because uh covid hits or some other national disaster, um, they don't. We st- they, the banks not let off on our mortgage because the people don't have to pay the rent. So yeah. I want to be one of my criteria is I want to be in a place where we're allowed to operate our business regardless of what the government wants to do on the outside.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. A lot of folks have talked about business friendly states, and in politics aside, it, it, they usually read states. the a little bit more business friendly and. And there's certain uh, good amount of it in South, but uh, there are also some some of these uh, states. And we, we, we've seen this as kind of a funny, uh, we do a good amount of business in Indiana. And then you go across the border, if you're in, in Illinois, it's no good. It's a very different kind of environment. So it's, it's almost like, the, yes, there are certain business friendly uh, states and cities. And even within a city. Yeah. Uh, city itself versus suburbs, municipalities. are a lot of those dynamics in selecting uh, the type of investment uh, uh, and and making sure that you can actually operate the asset, not the government operating you. Understood and agreed. So how are the deals are doing? I'm just curious. um, uh, You raised quite a bit of money uh, in the last um, 14 months. And the period of time was a lot of prosperity, a lot of great... um, Um, returns over the last few years but now things have been substantially slowing down the environment changed quite a bit interest rates are up um fast and furious and uh what are you seeing are are you first of all the first question is most of these deals in multifamily I don't know if you have a different experience people have acquired them with bridge debt especially if it's a value-add project and um a lot of these value-add deals uh the bridge debt the cost of money has gone up quite a bit. So I'm just curious, uh, what's been your experience? Uh, these projects operating well. Um, how how are you dealing with the much increased interest rate costs?
1: So I would say out of our 12 deals that we did as general partners in raising the capital, uh, eight of them are on bridge debt. The rest of them are on, unfi- the other four on fixed. And the bridge debt, um, we got all, all all of our projects on bridge. We got a three-year rate cap. So we our rates don't our rates, uh, our insurance on our rate does not expire till mid to late 2025 on most of these opportunities. So we're most of our deals are hovering right around a five, five and a half percent interest rate uh, net interest rate after the rate cap is kicked in and made the payment. But if without the rate caps, uh, we'd definitely be um, a little in trouble. Um, we, we have slowed down. Uh, I would say four out of our 12 are still um, distributing cash. The other eight, we are holding cash because we're anticipating possibly buying a new rate cap next year. And hopefully if uh, things go well and the curves that uh, Pensford and Chatham have put out show, we get into Q2 and into Q3, the rates start falling quite a bit. So that'll help uh, decrease the cost of a rate cap if we have to repurchase another one or we will come into the market next year fairly strong because we're still continuing to see a lot of rents go up. And so if rates start to come down, it might be a good opportunity to sell before you have to go out and purchase a rate cap uh, that you may not need. So we're evaluating all of our options and, all, and the, the main thing for us is to make sure we protect our investors' cash and return it and hopefully return it with a lot of friends so if you brought you gave me 100 grand i'm hoping to give you back 150 to two hundred thousand when we go to sell these assets uh in the next 12 to 18 months so my my goal is to um always protect the asset and protect the investor and if we can by protecting the asset we take care of the tenant and then by taking care of the tenants uh, they pay their rents, we can take care of our investors. And if we take care of those two people, uh, one of these days we will get taken care of ourselves. And thank gosh, I'm not relying on that for cash flow because the cash flow has dried up quite a bit, even across the. Because uh, I'm, in, I'm in a total of 29 different deals, um, to only 12 of them are as a general partner. And I'd say 40% are cash di- distributing out of those. The rest of them, uh, everybody's holding on to capital right now and uh, figuring out how to navigate what comes next.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, great wisdom, and, and, and um, it's good that, that you have enough exposure where you can kind of paint the picture uh, that good percentage of sponsors at minimum they stop distributions. And that's a that, that's a conservative move that certainly uh, reduces the risk, and it's a protection mechanism priority number 1 to have the deal survive and priority number number 2 obviously succeed so it makes a lot of sense and the rate caps all the stuff you mentioned makes makes perfect sense um and yeah the forward looking curve <laughs> a lot of, of multifamily and other commercial real estate investors are um they're hoping that those curves are correct and then the rates will come down to it. But the the economy and inflation is not exactly cooperating. In in uh in order for for in at least my two cents, in order for rates to start coming down, we got to see something a little bit more that resembles a real recession. We're not seeing a recession, and and it's going to be hard to see a uh, rates coming down at least um, anytime soon if we don't see um, enough of the recession rate type of behavior, some more unemployment, mm-hmm. some yeah. So it's all that common sense. But again, uh, everything you said makes makes a lot of sense. H- how do you execute well? Because at the end of the day, uh, your ability to sell, your ability to refinance, your ability to do anything with these assets is very much a function of good execution. Because all these projects, not all, but a lot of them have property management, construction, leasing. And uh, it's got a lot harder. And the compensation has got worse to the operators because the cash flow is drying up so it, it's it's harder to operate uh takes more time and effort and energy and a lower payday uh at least on a current pay basis so how do you make sure these projects succeed uh, do you co- go visit them often how often just curious uh if you have do you have partners with feet in the ground and every deal or are you still running some of these assets from a thousand miles away
1: on every deal, we have boots on the ground local to the to the property. And that's who our and that's who our asset manager is. So then they can see, touch, and under and understand exactly what's going on with that property. And they visit the property a minimum of once a month to ensure that the property managers are doing what they say they're going to do, making sure their curb appeal looks nice, making sure that uh our doors are open and people are in their offices so that when potential tenants come in, we are leasing. Uh we don't have any deals that are sub ninety percent uh, occupied, um, and that's even economically occupied. Um, so it's, that's been really good. Um, but we stay on top. We out of the gate when we first got into these, we were a little bit more loose with the property managers as to what to, they could spend and do for upgrades and things of that nature. We've since pulled the reins back in and said if it's if it's over X number of dollars. You need pr- approval from us to to go out and spend that money because we're trying to make sure that we are staying on top of them and not allowing them to have like a free checkbook and go willy nilly. Because at the end of the day, if they start spending all the money, and we can't afford to make the mortgages and their payroll and and things of that nature because we're spending it on yeah, upgrades or I don't know just things that don't necessarily need to be done. If it if it's not for safety um, reasons, I want to make sure I want to make sure we're doing safety and. Uh, proper proper uh place for a tenant to be able to live. It's got to be ha- habitable. So unless unless it it affects safety or how ha- how ha- it's hard to say that word, habitability. Um, we're trying to we're trying to hold off on spending way too much money as far as just regular beautification, if you will.
0: Yeah, understood. It, the, the health and safety, obviously, these the are requirements. And then, uh, nice to have. Are certainly you have to be a little bit more careful nowadays. Just curious, so what kind of assets are they? Class C, Class B. What you mentioned is sort of a little bit resembles to me a little bit more of a Class C type of assets, where you're, you're concerned less about uh, other things. But maybe that's some Class Bs. I'm just curious, what what kind of are they Cs, the Bs, uh, or mix? We
1: have, we have. Three C's, uh, two A's,
0: and seven B's. So it's a it's a good mix, averaging around B. It's not that's not bad. So that's that's good to hear. And, and um, again, with local property managers and operators, uh, you have local partners on each of these assets. Because one of one of the big challenges we've seen. Uh, folks are on an operation out of Phoenix, and they have, uh, and I have people on, on the podcast, and they have properties like you said in South, in Sunbelt, you know, Georgia, Florida, Texas, and uh, they don't go there sufficiently often, or even if they try, uh, try to go there, you still need to have hands-on operation, leasing, um, and they rely on third-party property managers. <laughs> but the the reliance on third property, third-party property managers. At least what I've heard from many operators, including some of the projects we've invested into, it's it's got a whole lot harder. And if you don't watch them carefully, uh, all the time, they Mm -hmm. underperform. And then the data talks to you and and they're not leasing well or the the NOI is not where it needs to be. And like you said, they're overspending on something else. So if you don't have a very tight uh, operating uh, methodology, some of these folks take advantage of you hundred percent.
1: That's why it's great to have boots on the ground. Like most of our Texas stuff is in Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio. And we have boots on the ground in each one of those metros. And then Nashville, we have boots on the ground. So we, and, and my, and it's great to have a partner that is, that's your asset manager that's local. And just to make sure that we're taking, we're actually putting eyes on the property a minimum once every 30 days
0: yeah i I really like that that methodology. it's it's well we've implemented in our own asset management because we invest a lot in a lot of these assets and uh normally you watch these assets quarterly um, if they're performing well, but the, the moment they start underperforming or, or you see some signs, you got to go immediately into a monthly uh, mode. and if there're really some concerns, you got to go into more frequent uh, reviews mm-hmm. and it, it's more time and effort, more uh energy and cost but without it, it, it most folks thought the years ago at least i've seen you could run them so so the market to care of all the problems but in this environment the market is not taking care of the problems so you have to be taking care of them you have to be good steward of these assets so um well we're kind of running out of of all, all good things come to an end unfortunately <laughs> running out of time on this one so um any final thoughts? Any good book to share? How would folks you know, get a hold of you if they are interested to learn? And again, I don't know. I guess you're not taking any investor money into ATMs, but you're doing some syndication. So, how would folks reach out if they wanted to uh, learn more?
1: Certainly, the a, a book that I would suggest uh, by Oren Claff is Flip the Script. That way, it sort of helps you when you're talking to your investors that are coming in that it's more their idea they should be wanting to put money with you not you wanting them to come in you it it teaches you how to actually reverse engineer your your pitch so that the investor thinks it's they're they're trying to convince you it's a great idea for them to be in your investment and now how to reach me i'm going to give you my two things i'm going to give you my cell phone and my email and if you want to get it you want to jump on a zoom with me at any point in time to talk about real estate or atms you can reach me or text me at 509-270-6701. That's 509-270-6701. Or my email is michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L at pacificcapitalllc.com. Just as it sounds, michael at com. And I really appreciate you, Mike, having me on. And uh, one of these days, I'll be the big Mike fund.
0: <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Appreciate your willingness and openness to chat with for folks and certainly uh a lot of few things about the atms are almost uh amazing and fascinating uh asset class and and what what what's really uh appealing is that they they they're cash kings i mean they they cash flow like there is no like there is no tomorrow if, if they're well run so appreciate that Absolutely. sharing you bet thank you thank you Michael once again and uh, enjoy your hot summer we're now in in the Pacific uh, Northwest enjoy I guess coolest summer absolutely thank you very much thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fund Podcast to receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fund Book head to BigMikeFund.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's Zlotnig keep listening and keep investing Big Mike Style